Hello, Wild Wanders, and welcome to our wicked window of the internet. Won't you pour yourself a cup of your best tea, light a candle to stave away the darkness, and cozy up as we tell you a story? Wittershins is a weekly podcast where we will dive into the dusty bookshelves and winding darkened pathways looking to stories from folklore, fairy tales, mythology, legend, and beyond. We are accompanied by our trusted bard and guitarist Joe Saborin, who will be live composing for us as our characters find their way out of the thickets and snarls of their tales. My name is Ashley Nunez, and I will be your narrator to peer over bough and branch, following our heroes and foes into far distant lands, both familiar and unknown. Let us begin once upon a time. August Heat by William Fryer Harvey Fenestone Road, Clapham, August 20th, 1900 I have had what I believe to be the most remarkable day in my life and while the events are still fresh in my mind I wish to put them down on paper as clearly as possible let me say at the outset that my name is James Clarence Withencroft. I am 40 years old, in perfect health, never having known a day's illness. By profession, I am an artist, not a very successful one, but I earn enough money by my black and white work to satisfy my necessary wants. My only near relative, a sister, died five years ago so that I am independent. I breakfasted this morning at nine and after glancing through the morning paper, I lighted my pipe and proceeded to let my mind wander in hope that I might chance upon some subject for my pencil. The room, though door and windows were open, was oppressively hot. And I had just made up my mind that the coolest and most comfortable place in the neighborhood would be the deep end of the public swimming bath. When the idea came, I began to draw. So intent was I on my work that I left my lunch untouched, only stopping work when the clock of St. Jude struck four. The final result for a hurried sketch was I felt sure the best thing I had ever done. It showed a criminal in the dock immediately after the judge had pronounced sentence. The man was fat, enormously fat, stumpy neck, flesh hung in rolls about his chin. He was clean-shaven, perhaps I should say a few days before he must have been clean-shaven, and almost bald. He stood in the dock, his short, clumsy fingers clasping the rail, looking straight in front of him. The feeling that his expression conveyed was not so much one of horror as of utter, absolute collapse. 
There seemed to be nothing in the man strong enough to sustain that mountain of flesh. I rolled up the sketch and, without quite knowing why, placed it in my pocket. Then, with a rare sense of happiness, which the knowledge of a good thing well done gives, I left the house. I believe that I set out with the idea of calling upon Trenton, for I remember walking along Lytton Street and turning to the right along Gilchrist Road at the bottom of the hill where the men were at work on the new tram lines. From there onwards, I have only the vaguest recollection of where I went. The only thing of which I was fully conscious was the awful heat that came up from the dusty asphalt pavement as an almost palpable wave. I longed for the thunder promised by the great banks of copper-colored cloud that hung low over the western sky. I must have walked five or six miles when a small boy roused me from my reverie by asking the time. It was twenty minutes to seven. When he left me, I began to take stock of my bearings. I found myself standing before a gate that led into a yard bordered by a strip of thirsty earth where there were flowers, purple stalk, and scarlet geranium. Above the entrance was a board with the inscription, Chaz Atkinson, monumental mason, worker in English and Italian marbles. From the yard itself came a cheery whistle the noise of hammer blows and the cold sound of steel meeting stone. A sudden impulse made me enter. A man was sitting with his back towards me, busy at work on a slab of curiously veined marble. He turned round as he heard my steps and I stopped short. It was the man I had been drawing whose portrait lay in my pocket. He sat there, huge and elephantine, the sweat pouring from his scalp, which he wiped with a red silk handkerchief. But though the face was the same, the expression was absolutely different. He greeted me, smiling as if we were old friends, and shook my hand. I apologized for my intrusion. Everything is hot and glary outside, I said. This seems an oasis in the wilderness. I don't know about Oasis, he replied, but it certainly is hot. It's hot as hell. Take a seat, sir. He pointed to the end of the gravestone on which he was at work, and I sat down. That's a beautiful piece of stone you've got hold of, I said. He shook his head. In a way, it is, he answered. The surface here is as fine as anything you could wish, but there's a big flaw at the back, though I don't expect you'd ever notice it. I could never make really a good job of a bit of marble like that. Would be all right in the summer like this. Wouldn't mind the blasted heat, but wait till the winter comes. There's nothing quite like frost to find out the weak points in stone. Then what's it for, I asked. The man burst out laughing. You'd hardly believe me if I was to tell you it's for an exhibition, but it's the truth. Artists have exhibitions, so do grocers and bushers, but we have them too. All the latest little things and headstones, you know. He went on to talk of marbles, which sort best withstood wind and rain and which were easiest to work, then of his garden and a new sort of carnation he had bought. At the end of every other minute, he would drop his tools, wipe his shining head, and curse the heat. 
said little, for I felt uneasy. There was something unnatural, uncanny in meeting this man. I tried at first to persuade myself that I had seen him before, that his face, unknown to me, had found a place in some out-of-the-way corner of my memory. But I knew that I was practicing little more than a plausible piece of self-deception. Mr. Atkinson finished his work, spat on the ground, and got up with a sigh of relief. There, what do you think of it? He said with an air of evident pride. The inscription, which I read for the first time, was this. Sacred to the memory of James Clarence Withencroft. Born January 18th, 1860. He passed away very suddenly on August 20th. In the midst of life, we are in death. For some time, I sat in silence. Then, shudder ran down my spine. I asked him where he had seen the name. Oh, I didn't see it anywhere, replied Mr. Atkins, and I wanted some name, and I put down the first that came to my head. Why do you want to know? It's a strange coincidence, but it happens to be mine. He gave a low, long whistle. I can only answer for one of the dates. And that one's correct. It's a rum go, he said. But he knew less than I did. I told him of my morning's work. I took the sketch from my pocket and showed it to him. As he looked, the expression of his face turned more and altered until it became more and more that like the man I had drawn. And it was only the day before yesterday, he said, that I told Maria there were no such thing as ghosts. Neither of us had seen a ghost, but I knew what he meant. You probably heard my name, I said. And you must have seen me somewhere. I have forgotten it. Were you at Clacton-on-Sea last July? been into Clacton in my life. We were silent for some time. We were both looking at the same thing, the two dates on the gravestone, the one on the right. Come inside and have some supper, said Mr. Atkinson. His wife is a cheery little woman, the flaky red cheeks of the country bread. Her husband introduced me as a friend of his who is an artist. The result was unfortunate, for after the sardines and watercrust had been removed, she brought out a Tory Bible, and I had to sit and express my admiration for nearly half an hour. I went outside and found Atkinson sitting on the gravestone smoking. We resumed the conversation at the point we had left off. You must excuse my asking, I said, but do you know of anything you've done for which you could be put on trial? He shook his head. 
I'm not bankrupt. The business is prosperous enough. Three years ago, I gave turkeys to some of the guardians at Christmas, but that's all I can think of. And they were small ones, too. He had as an afterthought. He got up, fetched a can from the porch, and began to water the flowers. Twice a day, regular in the hot weather, he said. And then the heat sometimes gets the better of the delicate ones. And ferns, good lord, they could never stand it. Where do you live? I told him my address. It would take an hour's quick walk to get back. It's like this, he said. We'll look at the matter straight. If you go back home tonight and you take your chance of accidents and a cart may run you over and there's always banana skins and orange peel to say nothing of fallen ladders. He spoke of the improbable with an intense seriousness that would have been laughable six hours before but I did not laugh. The best thing we can do, he continued, is for you to stay here till 12 o'clock. We'll go upstairs and smoke. It may be cooler inside. To my surprise, I agreed. We are sitting now in a long, low room beneath the eaves. Atkinson has sent his wife to bed. He himself is busy sharpening some tools at a little oilskin, smoking one of my cigars the while. The air seems charged with thunder. I'm writing this at a shaky table before the open windows. The leg is cracked. And Atkinson, who seems a handyman with his tools, is going to mend it as soon as he has finished putting an edge on the chisel. It is after eleven now. I'll ship it gone in less than an hour, but the heat is stifling. It is enough to send a man mad. The Adventure of the German Student by Washington Irving On a stormy night in the tempestuous times of the French Revolution, a young German was returning to his lodgings at a late hour across the old part of Paris. 
the lightning gleamed and the loud claps of thunder rattled through the lofty, narrow streets, but I should first tell you something about this young German. Gottfried Wolfgang was a young man of good family. He had studied for some time at Gottingen, but being of a visionary and enthusiastic character, He'd wandered into those wild and speculative doctrines which have so often bewildered German students. His secluded life, his intense application, and the singular nature of his studies had an effect on both mind and body. His health was impaired, his imagination diseased. He had been indulging in fanciful speculations on spiritual essences until, like Swedenborg, he had an ideal world of his own around him. He took up a notion, I do not know from what cause, that there was an evil influence hanging over him, an evil genius or spirit seeking to ensnare him and ensnare his perdition. Such an idea working on his melancholy temperament produced the most gloomy he became haggard and desponding. His friends discovered the mental malady preying on him and determined that the best cure was a change of scene. He was sent, therefore, to finish his studies amidst the splendors and gaieties of Paris. Wolfgang arrived at Paris at the breaking out of the revolution. The popular delirium at first caught his enthusiastic mind, and he was captivated by the political and philosophical theories of the day, but the scenes of blood which followed shocked his sensitive nature, disgusted him with society and the world, and made him more than ever a recluse. He shut himself up in a solitary apartment in the Pays Latin, the quarter of students. There gloomy street not far from the monastic walls of the Sorbonne, he perused his favorite speculation. Sometimes he spent hours together in the great libraries of Paris, those catacombs of departed authors rummaging among their hordes of dusty and obsolete works in quest of food for his unhealthy appetite. He was in a manner a literary ghoul feeding on the charnel house of decayed literature. Wolfgang, though solitary and recluse, was of an ardent temperament, but for a time it operated merely upon his imagination. He was too shy and ignorant of the world to make any advances to the fair. He was a passionate admirer of female beauty and in his lonely chamber would often lose himself in reveries on forms and faces which he had seen, and his fancies would deck out images of loveliness far surpassing the reality. While his mind was in this excited space, a dream produced an extraordinary effect on him. It was of a female face of transcendent beauty. So strong was the impression made that he dreamt of it again and again. It haunted his thoughts by day, his slumbers by night. In fine, he became passionately enamored of the shadow of a dream. It lasted so long that it became one of those fixed ideas which haunt the minds of melancholy men or at times 
mistaken for madness. Such was Gottfried Wolfgang, and such his situation at the time I mentioned. He was returning home late on a stormy night through some of the old and gloomy streets of the Marais, the ancient part of Paris. The loud claps of thunder rattled among the high houses of the narrow streets. He came to the Place de Greve, the square where public executions are performed. The lightning quivered about the pinnacles of the ancient Hotel de Ville. Shed flickering gleams over the open space in front. As Wolfgang was crossing the square, he shrank back with horror at finding himself close by the guillotine. It was the height of the reign of terror, when this dreadful instrument of death stood ever ready, and its scaffold was continually running with the blood of the virtuous and the brave. It had that very day been actively employed in the work of carnage, and there it stood in grim array amidst a silent and sleeping city, waiting for fresh victims. Wolfgang's heart sickened within him, and he was turning, shuddering from the horrible engine when he beheld a shadowy form, cowering, as it were, at the foot of the steps which led up to the scaffold. A succession of vivid flashes of lightning revealed it more distinctly. It was a female figure dressed in black. She was seated on one of the lower steps of the scaffold, leaning forward, her face hid in her lap and her long disheveled tresses hanging to the ground, streaming with the rain which fell in torrents. Wolfgang paused. There was something awful in this solitary monument of woe. The female had the appearance of being above the common order. He knew the times to be full of vicissitude and that many a fair head which had once been pillowed on down now wandered houseless. Perhaps this was some poor mourner whom the dreadful axe had rendered desolate and sat here heartbroken in the strand of existence from which all that was dear to her had been launched into eternity. He approached and addressed her in the accents of sympathy. She raised her head and gazed wildly at him. What was his astonishment at beholding by the bright glare of the lightning, the very face which had haunted him in his dreams? It was pale and disconsolate, but ravishingly beautiful. Trembling with violent and conflicting emotions, Wolfgang again accosted her. He spoke something of her being exposed at such an hour of the night and to the fury of such a storm and offered to conduct her to her friends. She pointed to the guillotine with a gesture of dreadful significance. I have no friends on earth, said she. But you have a home, said Wolfgang. Yes, grave. The heart of the student melted at his words. If a stranger dare make an offer, said he, without danger of being misunderstood, I would humbly offer 
my dwelling as a shelter, myself as a devoted friend. I am friendless myself in Paris and a stranger in the land, but if my life could be of service, it is at your disposal and should be sacrificed before harm or indignity should come to you. There was an honest earnestness in the young man's manner that had its effect. His foreign accent, too, was in his favor. It showed him not to be a hackneyed inhabitant of Paris. Indeed, there is an eloquence in true enthusiasm that is not to be doubted. The homeless stranger confided herself implicitly to the protection of the student. He supported her faltering steps across the Pont Neuf, and by the place where the statue of Henry IV had been overthrown by the populace. The storm had abated, and the thunder rumbled at the distance. All Paris was quiet. That great volcano of human passion slumbered for a while to gather fresh strength for the next day's eruption. A student conducted his charge through the ancient streets of the Pays Latin, and in by the dusky walls of the Sorbonne to the great dingy hotel which he inhabited. The old portress, who admitted them, stared with surprise at the unusual sight of the melancholy Wolfgang with a female companion. On entering his apartment, the student for the first time blushed at the scantiness and indifference of his dwelling. He had but one chamber, an old-fashioned saloon, heavily carved and fantastically furnished with the remains of former magnificence for it was one of those hotels in the court of nobility. It was lumbered with books and papers and all the usual apparatus of a student, and his bed stood at the recess at one end. When lights were brought and Wolfgang had a better opportunity of contemplation with the stranger, he was more than ever intoxicated by her beauty. Her face was pale but of a dazzling fairness set off by a profusion of raven hair that hung, clustering about it. Her eyes were large and brilliant with a singular expression, approaching almost to wildness. As far as her black dress permitted her shape to be seen, it was of perfect symmetry. Her whole appearance was highly striking, though she was dressed in the simplest style. The only thing approaching to an ornament which she wore was a broad black band round her neck, clasped by diamonds. The perplexity now commenced with the student how to dispose of the helpless being thus thrown upon his protection. He thought of abandoning his chamber to her and seeking shelter for himself elsewhere. Still, he was so fascinated by her charms, there seemed to be such a spell upon his thoughts and senses that he could not tear himself from her presence. Her manner, too, was singular and unaccountable. She spoke no more of the guillotine. Her grief had abated her attention to the student that first won her confidence, and then, apparently, her heart. She was evidently an enthusiast like himself, an enthusiast's soon understand each other. In the infatuation of the moment, Wolfgang avowed his passion for her. He told her the stories of his mysterious dream and how she had possessed his heart before he had ever seen her. She was strangely affected by his recital and acknowledged to have a feeling and impulse towards him equally unaccountable. 
It was the time for wild theory and wild actions, old prejudices and superstitions were done away. Everything was under the sway of the goddess of reason. Among other rubbish of the old times, the forms and ceremonies of marriage began to be considered superfluous bonds for honorable minds. Social compact with Vogue. Wolfgang was too much of a theorist not to be tainted by the liberal doctrines of the day. Why should we separate, said he, our heart? Are united in the eye of reason and honor, we are as one. What need is there of sordid forms to bind high soul together? The stranger listened with emotion. She had evidently received illumination of the same school. You have no home nor family, continued he. Let me be everything to you, or rather let us be everything to one another. If form is necessary, form shall be observed. There is my hand. I pledge myself to you forever. Forever? said the stranger solemnly. Forever, repeated Wolfgang. The stranger clasped the hand extended to her. Then I am yours, murmured she, and sank upon his bosom. The next morning, the student left his bride sleeping and sallied forth at an early hour to seek more spacious apartments suitable to the change in his situation. When he returned, he found the stranger lying with her head, hanging over the bed, one arm thrown over it. He spoke to her, but received no reply. He advanced to awaken her from her uneasy posture on taking her hand, it was cold. There was no pulsation. Her face was pallid and ghastly in a word. She was a corpse. Horrified and frantic, he alarmed the house. A scene of confusion ensued. The police were summoned. As the officer of police entered the room, he stared back on beholding the corpse. Great heaven, cried he. How did this woman come here? Do you know anything about her, said Wolfgang eagerly? Do I? exclaimed the officer. She was guillotined yesterday. He stepped forward, undid the black collar round her neck, and the head rolled on the floor. The student burst into frenzy. The fiend, the fiend has gained possession of me, shrieked he. I am lost forever. They tried to soothe him, but in vain. He was possessed the frightful belief that an evil spirit had reanimated the dead body to ensnare him. He went distracted and died in a madhouse. Here, the old gentleman with the haunted head finished his narrative. And is this really a fact? said the inquisitive gentleman. A fact not to be doubted, replied the other. I had it from the best authority. The student told it me himself. 
I saw him in a madhouse in Paris. Wittershins is created by Ashley Nunez of Old Growth Alchemy and folk musician Joe Saborin in the presence of their curious cat Django, a few too many half-drunk cups of tea, and far too many begrudgingly half-completed art projects. If you'd like to follow along Joe and his musical machinations, you can find him at Joe Saborin Music on Facebook and Instagram, or joesaborin.com. For more glimpses into the wild woods of story, botanical libations, and central ephemera, you can find me, Ashley, at Old Growth Alchemy on Facebook and Instagram, or at oldgrowthalchemy.com. Or you can become patrons to us both on Patreon. Until next time, friends new and old, we'll be sure to keep the kettle on with a seat open for you by the fire.